Last week, Andrew took us through the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2, which uh, Paul encourages Titus to teach the church family what it looks like to live out what they believe in a way that makes the gospel attractive to those who watch our lives. And as we arrive now in verse 11, he gives us a beautiful summary of what is to motivate us to live that way. We've been saved by Jesus, and that should shape the way that we live our lives now. But how did Jesus save us, and how does this help us to live for him? Well, the answer to both of these questions is by grace. And we just sang about it in John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Paul says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it's that same grace, he says in verse 12, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this age. It's the grace of God that saves us and it's the grace of God that teaches us to live a godly life. And those are the two ideas that are captured at the beginning of John Newton's famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then in the second verse, God's grace first taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. You see, John Newton knew what it meant to be taught and saved by God's grace. He was a slave trader, shipping hundreds of slaves from Africa to America until one day he was miraculously converted. The story goes that just off the coast to Ireland, his, uh, his boat was under tremendous strain and it looked like it would be shipwrecked. He prayed, something he hadn't done very much of, something he learned from his mother at a very young age, but he prayed to God to save him. Apparently, the, uh, the cargo filled the hole in the gap that um, was letting in all the water and the boat was saved and travelled safely to land. And he attributes that, that point to when he was converted, to when he turned to God. John Newton discovered the grace of God that saved him, but he also discovered the grace of God which gave him the motivation over time to transform his life completely to support the likes of William Wilberforce, to see the whole abolishment of slavery, the very trade he and his father and many before him had been in. And this is what Paul is teaching us. It's the grace of God that teaches us to change our very lifestyle. But what does Paul mean by grace? It's interesting, I've heard just recently that out in the community, grace is almost misunderstood. It's a girl's name not something that has got so much richness in the way that the Bible speaks of it. So what is grace? Well, clearly it's a generosity, a kindness, an undeserved favour. I guess it's like if you go into somebody's home and you trample mud into their nice shag carpets and then a little later on you spill your drink on the family heirloom tablecloth and it seems that you're just doing one thing after another and yet your host still makes you feel welcome still makes you feel like you're at home which of course is exactly how you're treating it that's grace your host treats you in a way that you do not deserve so grace is a kindness an undeserved favor it's the same grace that has appeared for the salvation of all people 
says Paul. And notice what it does, verse 11, it saves, and then in verse 12, it trains. Well, let's look at these in turn. First, the grace that saves us. Verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, another word for salvation is the word rescue. So we could say that the grace of God has appeared to rescue all people. Now, what does Paul mean by all people? Well, he can't mean everybody everywhere will be saved because it's clear from the last verse that we'll come to soon that, well, not everybody will be saved. No, in the context of the passage, Paul is saying that God's salvation has appeared to rescue all kinds of people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and even slaves because of his grace. But it's not just all kinds of people, but all kinds of people who are in danger because you don't need to be rescued unless you're in danger, do you? I guess it's like you're standing there on South Cronulla Beach one day looking towards a surf club and then suddenly a lifesaver comes over and rescues you. Seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? He can't rescue you unless you're actually in danger. But he says, oh, yeah, you're in danger, all right. There was a massive wave coming in, and while you had your back to the surf, he ran down and pulled you up the beach and saved you. He rescued you. But saying that he rescued you says by definition that you were in danger, doesn't it? So back here in Titus, what is the salvation that we receive here? What is it that we've been rescued from? Well, verse 13 and 14 says this. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. Now, to redeem is to buy something back, usually at a cost. So if I was to sell my watch to the pawnbroker, I would need to buy it back from the pawnbroker at what he paid me plus interest. Jesus, the Saviour, has redeemed us from wickedness, it says here. And how does he save us? Well, he saves us by giving himself. Notice there, there's that give word, that grace word, the generosity, the undeserved favour. So back in verse 11, where does the grace of God appear? It appears in the person of Jesus who gave himself, that is, gave his life on the cross for other people who were totally undeserving. So Jesus pays the ransom price to redeem us, to buy us back. But to buy us back from what? Well, we're told here it is from our wickedness. That's the danger we've been rescued from, isn't it? But hang on a second. Wicked? I mean, I'm not wicked. I mean, I might not be perfect, but, but you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I seek not to do the wrong thing. I haven't cheated on my wife. I've cared for my kids and given them everything that they've needed. I've been a good citizen. I've been a good friend. I mean, wicked? But think about it this way for a moment. Imagine if you were capable of only sinning three times a day. Three times. Only sinning three times a day. Now, doesn't take much to add to three, let me say. You wake up, you get out of bed, you're a bit grumpy, but you trip on the edge of the bed and you stub your toe and you curse a profanity. 
Well, you then make your way um, into the bathroom, clean yourself up, and then make your way out for breakfast. But one of the family members have drunk all the milk. And so you get yourself angry just simply because what you want's not there. Well, you've got through to breakfast and you get through um, to work and a little bit later on in work, you realise, I've gone through the whole four to five hours that I've been awake and not once thought of God, not once thought of um, his role in my day-to-day, not once thought about what I'm meant to be doing as I live for him. Four times, all sins, three times, all before lunch. Three times a day. Now, if it was just three times a day, sinning three times a day, that's 21 times a week. That's 93 times a month. It's 1,116 times a year. It's 78,120 times if you live to the age of 70. Now, imagine that you went to a judge and said, but judge, really, please, I'm a good person. I mean, I've only sinned 78,120 times. You see, the truth is, we're just not as good as we think we are. And before a perfect God who has created us to live for him, frankly, we're wicked. We're just good at hiding it. And so by grace, God offers to rescue us, to rescue all kinds of people from that wickedness. How? By Jesus' gracious giving of his life to redeem us from the death that we deserve. And why? Well, the last sentence tells us, so that he can purify for himself a people that are his very own, who call on him as their Lord and God, and who are eager and willing to live his way by doing what is right and good. So our only way to be saved is through God's grace shown in the death of Jesus. Now that, of course, doesn't give us a license then to go and live however we want, does it? We've seen that the purpose of this rescue is that we can now be God's people, keen to do what is good. But you may well ask, how do I know what is good? How do I know what God wants me to do? Well, this is where the second idea comes into being. The grace that saves us is also the very grace that trains us. You may have noticed in verse 11 to 14 of Titus chapter 2 that in verse 11 it says that God's salvation, God's rescue package has appeared. It's already happened. We can receive it now. We can have the absolute assurance of heaven now. But then later on in verse 13, it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we don't yet physically have that gift now, that heaven now. We are waiting to that great day when Jesus comes back to collect his people. It's a bit like this. Imagine you've been rescued by a lifesaver out at sea. Your boat's capsized, and the lifesaver pulls you aboard the raft. But you're not the only one that's got into trouble, and so the lifesaver tells you to stay on the life raft until he turns and takes you back to shore. I mean, you're saved. You're no longer swallowing mouthfuls of salt water. But you're yet to be saved because you're not yet back on dry lands. So what is it that you do now? 
as you wait for your Savior, the one who has already saved you, to come back and finish the activity of saving you. You see, you're not waiting in any danger anymore. You're sitting there safely on the life raft, waiting for the return of your Savior to rescue you. If we're Christians, we can be assured that we are saved now, assured of going to heaven because of the grace of God. It's not something we've done to deserve or something we can earn, but because of God's love for us and his grace, he has saved us. Yet what are we to do until we physically, um, until we physically get to heaven? What do we do between now and then? That is, now that I'm on the life raft, what do I do? What is the activity? What is the lifestyle of people on the raft waiting for the Savior to come back? Well, friends, this is where our passage tells us that the grace of God that saved us is the same grace that now trains us. So how does grace train us? And what does grace train us for? Well, when we truly understand the grace that God has showed us when he rescued us, when we understand that we've been plucked from the surf and placed on the life raft for a purpose, then it becomes clear what we're supposed to do. We saw earlier that we've been saved to live a life of godliness, to live a life eager to do what is good. Can you see then the utter stupidity of jumping back into wickedness? The very thing we've been saved from, we jump back to. It's like the person who's saved from the raging sea and dragged onto the life raft only to say, oh, you know, thanks very much, but it's a little bit boring stuck here on the raft. You know, as I wait, I think I might just jump back into the sea and go for a swim. I mean, what an absolute absurdity that would be. We've just been saved from a life of ungodliness. Why would we jump straight back into it? So then what are we to do? Well, it's summarized for us in verse 12. This grace that trains us teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. To say, no, I'm not going to hang around in this surf anymore. You're drowned down there. It's a dreadful lifestyle. No, I'm going to live here on the raft. How? Well, firstly, in right relationship with myself, under my own control, which I wasn't in when I was drowning. Now I'm going to live in a right relationship with my neighbours. And more importantly, in a right relationship with the God who saved me. And so self-controlled, upright and godly is the character or end product of the training of grace. So we can see from this passage that grace is the very pathway to godliness. It has appeared to save us, but it's this same grace that will teach us to live the new lifestyle that God's called us into. Well, friends, you know this grace that I've been talking about in this talk. Do you realize that you'll never be good enough for God by just trusting in your own good works? And that it's only through Jesus and his glorious death in your place that you'll secure a place in heaven. This is the grace that God has shown me and that I responded to when I was at uni. Before this, I knew of Jesus. I even taught Sunday school. I was a good person. I tried to please God in the things I did, in the choices I made. But deep down, I kept making mistakes. 
And I realized that my faith was in myself to be good enough for God. More and more, I felt that I didn't deserve a place in God's family. And yet that was what God was promising me if I was to willing to place my trust in Jesus, in his death on the cross and in the work he had done for me. And trust that Jesus' death on the cross is all that I needed. And so then at uni, I put my trust in Jesus, who by grace saved me. And so the question I have for you is, have you done that same thing? Have you accepted the free gift of salvation that's on offer to you? Not based on what you have done, not based on the good works you try to do, but based solely upon the gracious rescue that Jesus' death has made possible for you. Friends, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, you can do that right now. God, in his love, graciously has offered the very rescue package to bring you back into relationship with himself. Not based on your work, but based on Jesus' work. Are you willing to put your trust and faith in him today? But for those of us that know this grace, this grace that saved us, well, it's that very same grace that will train us, that will transform us and change us to live a different lifestyle, a self-controlled, upright and godly lifestyle that is pleasing to God. As Christians, we're not motivated by living by a whole set of rules. We're not motivated by doing all the right things. No, we're motivated because we have been shown such amazing grace. We're motivated because we have been shown such amazing love in the work of Jesus in our place and on the absolute assurance that he will come back to take us to be with him forever. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this incredible act that Jesus did for us by dying for us so that we could be restored into relationship with you, not because we deserved it, not because in any way we could earn it, but because you loved us and by grace saved us. And we thank you that understanding that grace is what we need to be able to be transformed into becoming more and more like Jesus, living self-controlled, upright and godly lives, not because it's by our strength, but by your strength in us through the work of your spirit that's changing us because that grace that saved us is the same grace that trains us to live a life of godliness. Father, help us to become more and more like you by understanding more clearly the grace that saved us and the grace that continues to work in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.